you would, turn to Joel chapter 1. We're going to finish the chapter today. And while you turn there, I'll pray. Father, again, I thank you, Lord, for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, I thank you for the gospel. God, I thank you for this word that was given so long ago and how we can see today how much alive it really is as it is completely relevant to us today. God, I pray that it would speak to our hearts, that it would speak to my heart, that it would cause me to turn to you, to to repent of sins, to repent of slothfulness and bring us closer to you Bring us closer together in these times of need, in this time of uncertainty in our world. Lord, that we would find that the song we sang is true. All we need and all we have is Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. So if you haven't been here, and if you're not very familiar with the book of Joel, this first chapter has been describing an incredible plague of locusts. And we have determined through the first 13, first 12 verses that these locusts are coming as a judgment of God. And we're going to understand that even more as we go through this. But they have come in, in, in um, swarms. To the point where there is nothing left. They have devoured every living thing. Every green plant in, in the land is gone. The crops are gone. The trees are gone. There's no shade left. Um, and it comes along with drought, as we're going to see today. There's a great drought, which a lot of times come together. And so, Joel is coming to speak in a time... To try to call God's people, call, call his, the nation of Israel to repentance. And that's what we're going to see today. And, and so we, we're going to start here in verse 13. Let me go back and read verse 12. It says, The vine has dried up and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate, the pomegranate tree also, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, and all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. And so there's nothing left. There's, it, it appears in this land that there's nothing positive. And so now Joel is going to give some specific instruction, commands even, on what to do in response to this. So look at verse 13. It says, Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So Joel is giving specific instructions to the priests. And so this, a lot of this first part here is coming to me as a minister of God's word. And it's coming to my fellow elders and I know we have at least one pastor from another congregation here today. And this is going to come directly to us. 
And then it's going to come to the rest of you. This is also going to come to anybody who has the desire to be a minister. He's, giving, he's talking to us first. He says, gird yourselves and lament. As God's ministers, we must realize that when judgment comes on the people of God, it is our duty to mourn before the Lord. He says, to, to gird yourselves in layman, it shows that we must have a personal resolve to fast and express sorrow. It is a recognition that God's judgment is here, and we should be extremely sorrowful when we have displeased the Lord. If the nation of Israel at the time was displeasing the Lord, it was on the priests partially. Now, it's never, it's not, never all on them. But it is on them. If a congregation of God's people is faltering, if they're wavering from God's truth, that responsibility falls on the ministry. It falls on us. If the church in general, when you look at the church, the entire church of the world, is displeasing to God, then the fault lies on the ministry. And it is also, it means that the duty to be mournful also falls with us. The, the, we, are, we should be the first to recognize that God's judgment is here. We should be the first to be sorrowful and mourn for that. And he says, look at this, he says, lie all night in sackcloth. It's a long-term commitment. You need to gird yourself in sackcloth until this thing is changed, until something moves, until God moves, until the people move. Sackcloth was a rough, dark cloth. It was not um, appealing at all. Um, probably very itchy. Most of the time it would have been made out of either goat's hair or camel's hair. And would have been um, uncomfortable to wear. It was used as a sign of mourning and great sorrow. You would put on sackcloth if you were mourning the loss of a loved one. Um, if there was great sorrow, you would put on sackcloth. Many times the prophets that were coming and preaching judgment is to come would wear sackcloth. And if you remember Elijah, and if you remember John the Baptist... They It described them as wearing camel's hair. They were not wearing a fine linen of priestly clothes like these priests that Joel is talking to here. And so it would have been an extreme discomfort for them. Take off your fine linens, put on sackcloth, and let's get to mourning. Let's get to calling out to God. It was, a, it was also a way to demonstrate humility. When you put it on, it was a constant reminder to the priests to mourn because they were used to the finer linen. It would be itchy, and every time it would itch, it's a reminder, I should be in mourning. Every time it would itch, it's a reminder, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm nothing. Right? You are but grass, as Paul said this morning. In Jeremiah 6.26, it says, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. 
mourn as for an only son, a lamentation most bitter, for suddenly this destroyer will come upon us. It's a reminder, roll in ashes, put on sackcloth. It's a reminder that we are just dust of the earth. Oh man, who are we? And the priest had a specific problem with elevating themselves higher than they ought to. And I'm afraid, as preachers, we can easily tend to have the same problem. In other words, he's saying, put on humility. And I'm just going to say, it is time in our country, in our world, in our current climate, in our culture, that a whole lot of ministers would listen to the prophet Joel and put on some humility. It says the offerings are withheld from the house of God. The grain offering, the drink offering, they're withheld from the house of God. God had taken away the ability and the high privilege of offering those sacrifices that were intended to symbolize his people's devotion to him. He's the one that instituted this command. You are to offer this grain offering. You're to offer this fruit offering, the fruit of the vine. And now he's taken it away. How did he take it away? There's nothing to offer. And this shows that Israel's condition was actually much more serious than just locusts eating the plants. That was an immediate problem. We talked about that in sermons before about how strenuous that was physically on the people. But what we're seeing now is that is that is just a small part of the problem. The real problem is that they have a separation from God. He has taken away their ability to worship him in the way that he ordained. Why? Because they had already removed themselves. They had started separating themselves from him. And we can learn a lot from this. Hopefully we can learn a lot from this before it gets to this point. Right? The call, the call now is to repent. To turn to Him. Turn back to Him. And so He gives these, He gives that, that first and foremost part there is to the ministers. But then look at 14. He tells them what to do. In verse 14 He says, Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So he's first told the leaders to fast and limit. And then now he's telling the leaders to tell the people, here's what you do. And there's some there's an interesting leadership principle in that. And that is that the leaders should always be the first to do whatever is necessary to turn to God. It's a lead by example type of position, right? And whatever leadership position is in the church, we should always be the ones leading the way and you lead by going and the, and the people follow, right? You don't lead by telling. You lead by example and that's what he's saying here that you ministers mourn. You ministers wrap yourself in sackcloth. You ministers wail and pray and return to God. And once you've done that, now 
tell the people to do this. And he uses these terms, consecrate, proclaim, gather, cry out. And these are not suggestions. They're commands. This is what you tell them to do. And, and that's where, as a minister, that is a large part of our job. is to call people to repentance. And what you may or may not realize is that most, in most of the cases, it is, I have to repent so that I can call you to repentance. And we spend a lot of time in repentance ourselves of our fleshly nature, our sins in this world, our pride. And we can repent based on the grace of, only by the grace of God. And then that we can call other people to repentance. But it's also that we must be able to help people recognize their sins and work through them. We must be able to take the word of God, and that's part of, that's why we have preaching every Sunday. We stand at this pulpit, and we're trying to take the word of God and reveal to you your sins through his word. Why? Because it is perfect. When you compare yourself to it, you can realize your imperfections. You can realize your sins. And by doing that, it brings forth conviction and repentance. By the power of the Holy Spirit who's working in you. And so that's our job. And that's what he's saying to do. So when we look at these first two verses, they kind of show us the intent of Joel's message. And that is that judgment is coming. But first, it's also that judgment begins at the house of God. Turn over to Hebrews Chapter 12. Going the wrong way. Hebrews 12. Verse 5 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which, which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are re- rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And so we see that God's judgment comes to his people first. But it's not the same judgment that the world is under condemnation of. It's not the same judgment that the world is in danger of. It is a chastening. As believers, we have a fear of God, right? We have a certain fear of God because he created us. We understand his almighty power. We understand his justice. His perfection, His holiness, and we understand how far apart we are from that. But we do not have the same fear, and we should not have the same fear as those who are unbelievers. Why? Because as believers, it is actually a sweet sound to hear God's call to repentance. Why? Because if you are a believer, the call to repentance means that he stands willing and ready 
to receive those who repent. That is incredible. Let us not lose the awesomeness of that. The perfect, holy God stands waiting for me to repent. And not only does he stand waiting with open arms, willing to receive me back based on the merit of Christ, but he gives me the power. He actually causes me to turn by the power of his Holy Spirit. He will not let me go too far to the right or too far from the left, to the left. He brings me back to himself. And that is praiseworthy. So we not, need not fear because who he loves He chastens. And sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it does. Sometimes we have to leave the things that we like, our flesh likes, but he brings us back and we find out it's so much better. So much better with Christ. So back to Joel in, in verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. And so this is the first occurrence. The theme of this book, the theme of the book of Joel, is the day of the Lord is at hand. And this is the first time we see it here. And it says, it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. It shows us that the day of the Lord is going to be a judgment. When you hear about the day of the Lord in the scriptures, it's go- judgment comes with that. And it says the day of the Lord is near. This is not it. This swarm of locusts that is devouring everything you see. This loss of joy that you have. This loss of temple worship that you have. This is not the day of the Lord. This is not the ultimate judgment. You think this is bad? Just wait until you see the day of the Lord. And he says, it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. The literal translation here of the Hebrew is Shad and Shaddai. It means an overpowering from the overpower. It's kind of hard to say, but that's what it means. It means later in chapter 2, it's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. It will come as a destruction, a complete annihilation from who? Who is this judgment coming from? Who is going to bring this despair? The Almighty. It is the overpowerer will come and overpower sin. He will set all things right. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, will execute wrath on those who he did not receive it for. And I'm going to tell you, this nonsensical preaching that God doesn't send people to hell, they send themselves there, that has got to stop. That is absurd. What criminal ever sent himself to prison? They don't do that. Yes, they earn their way there. Yes, every single person on this planet has earned his way to hell, but not a single one of them will choose to go there. God sends them there. That's justice, and it's coming. And it is coming in a way that we cannot even fathom because the overpowerer is going to overpower that sin. 
It is God Himself who will drop the gavel on sinners. Paul Washer said that in that day, that day will be both wonderful and terrible. It depends on what side you are on. And it couldn't be more true. When that great and terrible day of the Lord, it's great and terrible. It's great for those of us who are in Christ. We're on the right side of the law. Why? Because we're so good? No, but think about when Christ was on the cross. Think about the time before Christ was on the cross, when He was praying in the garden with such anxiety and such stress and dread even, that He's sweating drops of blood. And He prays to God, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. And what was He dreading? The wooden cross, the scourging. Yeah, I'm sure that was his flesh dreaded those things. But you're talking about God himself, God the Son, praying this prayer. He was not dreading what a man could do to him. He said, you can't even take my life from me. I'll lay it down. They couldn't do anything to him. What he was dreading was that the wrath of Almighty God was going to be poured out to him, on him, on that cross. And as we look at this in the great and dreadful day of the Lord, it's great for those who receive, who will not receive that wrath because he received it for them. But it is terrible because everybody else will receive it. And there is no middle road, and there is no fence to ride on here. It's either in Christ or under judgment. And so what are we to do? Repent and be spared. You can be spared. You can repent today. And if you're a believer, and you know these things to be true, then it's speaking to your heart in this time, and you think... Maybe I've, maybe I've been a little over here. Or maybe I've been wavering a little over here. Well, now's the time. Now's the chastening to, and God can bring you back. And He is. He's calling you back right now to Himself so that you know that you'll be spared. Look at verse 16. I'll read 16 through 18. It says, Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, storehouses are in shambles, barns are broken down, for the grain has withered. How the animals groan, the herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment." There is no place on the creation at this point, or at least in their world that they know, that has been spared of this terrible plague. And it's an amazing description of the present judgment and suffering of this cursed world. And maybe we haven't suffered a plague quite like this one. But have we not suffered Have we not seen God working in this world, in this present time? 
God's people have suffered. I mean, we've even gone through periods of time where we were not able to gather to worship. Similar to as they were, their, their offerings were cut off. We've had similar times for various reasons, but mostly related to a virus, a plague of some, of sorts, right? The sickness and pain that many of us have felt from a virus that's been very real. We've lost loved ones. We've lost loved ones here due to this. And in addition to that, it's been a lot of anguish, increased anguish caused along with this, where you can't even have visitors when you're in the hospital. And the, the elderly can't have visitors in the nursing home. And there's an extreme sense of loneliness among God's people that I've never experienced in my time on this earth. I've, I've never personally praised the Lord. He has been very merciful to me. I've never been overnight in a hospital for me. My wife has, and we've been there, of course, when we had children too. But I remember when Grace was born, the excitement that it was when somebody would come in and the I mean I I am not real good at sitting still my wife can tell you I would wander off and I would walk I knew the hospital well by the time we left two days later because I would walk but when people would come and visit the excitement that it was just to see people and and get to talk to somebody and we've now been a year where the people who are hurting in hospitals or celebrating can't experience that. That's real. These are real problems. These are real things that we're, that we're going through. And not to mention, in the midst of all of this, it certainly seems that God is turning a large portion of our population over to a retrobate mind. I mean, this is not just... The virus, we're seeing all kinds of other things going on, riots and complete confusion when it comes to things that are actually not confusing. Like gender roles or gender identity. What, what is that? That's a new term. We've had more new terms invented in the last year than maybe in the history of the world. Gender identity. I don't even know what that means. But I have never seen in my life, and I'm sure most everybody in here could say the same thing, they've never seen a bigger desire in a culture than to do, than now to do what is right in your own eyes. We are seeing it. It is, we are there. It is everybody do what is right in your own eyes. Whatever makes you happy. And it's been building. It's been building for 20, 30, 40 years. We've been hearing this. Whatever makes you happy, follow your heart, all of that. And it was preached again. Some people would say, well, you just, you're just too hard. Well, this is where it leads to. This is where that has led to. And as we stand in these times, I think the message of Joel is so relevant that he could be standing in front of our church, catching us elders as we come in and giving us this same rebuke that he's given to them. And the reality is, I know I deserve it. 
And praise God that he's given it to us now so that we can turn and we can give the same exhortation to the congregation so that we can take this and we can turn around and we can serve our God. But the problem is there's many pastors of our day that are ignoring the problem. They would rather give in to the culture than to stand solid on the word of God. I'm talking about protecting the church from false doctrine and the lies of Satan. And we're seeing it on a broad scale. Lies like, I never imagined that I would have to defend somebody for preaching against homosexuality. But we're living in that time. We are living in a time where there is a lie being told that you can live in a homosexual lifestyle and still be a Christian. There's lies being told that races are a real thing. The Bible doesn't speak of race. It speaks of race as one blood, one race. It's the human race. But we see more racial divide now than we've seen in a long time. We're talking about pastors who are so intent on looking good to our current culture that they have basically removed their own authority when it comes to members of a different race. What I mean by that is, how can you lead people if you're taking blame for their problems? This is not an okay thing. We need to get into the Scripture. And what does the Scripture say? If you weren't here this morning for a clipping hour, I really wish you would have been. Because that's exactly what Paul was talking about. In that we have nothing through our ethnicity. Your ethnicity doesn't mean anything in the economy of God. What do we have? We have Christ. And that's it. He's the seed of Abraham, and we find our blessing through him and through him alone. And all of this other stuff about races and the critical race theory and all of this stuff, and I don't even claim to understand a lot of it. All I know is it is a major distraction from the word of God. It is a major distraction from Jesus Christ, and it's a major distraction from the work and the worship that we should be giving to him. And then now this last couple of weeks, and this has been going on for a while, but even in the most conservative of denominations, we're seeing women being ordained as pastors. And to do that, they are completely ignoring 1 Timothy 2.12. We are in a time where the voice of Joel is desperately needed. And I really am concerned that we're in a time where a plague of locusts may be desperately needed. We can't wake up through a pandemic. We can't wake up through all kinds of weirdness in the world. At some point, when God removes enough of our luxuries, you turn to him. 
And that's what the warning is. That's what was going on here with Joel. He takes away everything that makes them joyful and leaves them only with God. But, that's pretty bleak, I know. But, do not despair. You Christians, do not despair. Because these sufferings are temporary. They will not remain. This is a purging of Christ's bride. And the true believers, I promise, the true believers will emerge on the other side. And there may be many, there may be a few, I don't know how many, I don't know, I don't pretend to know what it's going to look like on the other side. But there will be some that don't make it through this judgment. There will be some who will be revealed as false converts. There will be some who will be revealed as tares among the wheat and goats among the sheep. But do not despair because if you are a believer in Christ and you truly belong to him, you will not be one of those. You can't. Turn over to Romans Chapter 8. Starting in verse 18, listen to what Paul says. And listen, Paul went through some serious suffering, as you all know. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present times are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectations of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty Of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in who? In us. The glory shall be revealed in us. Yes. The whole creation groans. We can see it so clearly. That's why there's plagues. That's why there's viruses. That's why there's sickness and despair and extreme cold and extreme heat and flooding and drought. It's all because this world is under a curse. But God. And he is going to return. And he is going to remove this awful curse from this earth and things will be set right. And as believers in him, we can so look forward to that day. And all of the anguish and all of the despair will be gone. Back over in Joel. In verse 19 and 20, he says, O Lord, to you I cry out. 
For fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. So he turns now, he compares it to a fire, and here's where we see the drought. Not only is there the plague of locusts eating everything around, but the, the brooks are even dried up. So now we're not only dealing with starvation, we're also dealing with thirst. And it's not only the, the people that are hurting, it's even the livestock. It's even the wildlife. It's an amazing bad time when you speak of nature when the wildlife are suffering. They're, they're pretty good at fending for themselves. But we're talking to a point now where even the beasts of the field... The cattle, everything is suffering. Why? Because the judgment was that strong. But look at look at back at the very first part of 19. We see Joel. We see Joel's response to this plague. We see Joel's response to this judgment. He says, O oh Lord, to you I cry out. So the first one to deliver the message is the first one to heed it. And that should always be the case. I know that it may, it may seem sometime like preachers are up here stepping on your toes. That's what they always say, stepping on your toes. Sometimes I feel more like they're hitting me in the forehead. But the reality is when we stand and do this, it's ours first. It's coming to us first. And this one certainly is for me. So I hope and I pray that I am the first one to heed this message just as Joel was. I hope and I pray that I can stand with Joel and I can cry out to God to help me. Help me, Lord. Turn my mind to you. Turn my mind away from these worldly pleasures and turn it to you Christ and then I can stand up here and I can tell you to do the same cry out to your God he loves you he wants to hear from you he wants to hear these this anguish of your sin being repented of I mean it's no doubt that Joel takes no pleasure in the judgment He's part of the judgment. He is in it as well. He doesn't escape this, right? No matter, and, and that's the thing. There's some that are li- living. They're not buying into this stuff. They're not buying into this sinful world. But yet, you're, we're all in this together, right? And that's what we're seeing with Joel. And he cries out ultimately because he loves his Lord and doesn't want to be separated from him. But also, he sets an example for the religious leaders of his day who should set the example for the remainder of the congregation of Israel. And so it is with us. And so it is with my prayer that the preachers, not just here, but everywhere, standing at a pulpit this Sunday morning, my prayer is that preachers everywhere would cry out to God, Repent of their sins and lead their congregations to do the same. If that would happen, can you imagine how much better 
the world would be? If, true, if all those who named the name of Christ, who claimed the name of Christ in Ada, in Oklahoma, would actually repent and cry out to God, you wouldn't recognize the place tomorrow. So that is our prayer. And it starts here. It starts with you. We can't control what they do, but we can control what we do in our own hearts. And so as we finish this chapter... And we've seen basically an alarm cry to repentance. We've seen an alarm cry of what is going on, going wrong with Israel and the need for humility first from the leaders and then from the congregation. And this alarm cry is nothing compared to that which is, come, which is to come. And it's amazing and scary how well that fits us today. Let us not be tares in the wheat and let the warnings pass us by. Let us not be like unbelievers in Joel's time who disregarded the warnings. Let us, as people who are here gathered together in the name of Christ, let us be like Joel and cry out in anguish and humble our hearts towards Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for revealing my sin to me through your word. I thank you for always doing that. For no matter how much my heart tends to wander, how you always bring it back. And that is an amazing thing. I know how incredible that is. I know how much power that takes. And I thank you for it. And I pray for each one here today that it would be the same for them. God, if there's any here, anyone here who has not bowed a knee to you, who you have not granted repentance, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. God, I would pray that no one here under my, under this, that hears these words, that hears my voice, would face that judgment. God, that you would grant repentance, Lord. I pray that we would each honor you in that. Honor your justice and honor your mercy, God. What an amazing thing. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.